The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a podcast about business brought to you by Breaking Views, the opinion and financial arm of Reuters. I'm Dasha Afanasyeva, a columnist in London. Becoming a publicly traded company involves jumping through many hoops. Legal and financial advisors charge hefty fees to make sure companies meet transparency and governance requirements before they are unleashed on public markets. Yet instances of fraud, including on established exchanges, such as London, still crop up. Spotting these miscreants can carry big rewards. Short sellers borrow stock to sell, reveal a convincing case for why the company is dodgy and should be worth a lot less than the market thinks. And then they buy the stock back at a lower price and make a profit. One of the most prolific among these short sellers is Muddy Waters, which made its name shorting Chinese companies before branching out to Europe and the United States. Its founder, Carson Block, joins me now from San Francisco. Hello, Carson. Thank you for coming on. Hi, Dasha. Nice to be here. You've got a particular gripe with special purpose acquisition companies, which raise money to do M&A. You said that they were the greatest money grab of 2020. Why do you think that? I mean, they... (laughs) They are so lucrative for the uh, SPAC sponsors or SPAC promoters, and it just was uncanny to me seeing how many SPACs were raised, the sizes of uh, the amounts of money that were raised, and now the cast of characters who who are gravitating to SPACs. You know, like supposed former boy genius congressman Paul Ryan is g- getting involved with the SPAC. I mean, you know. This idiot couldn't even help run a functional government. I mean, God knows, like, what he's going to, you know, what, you know, how he's going to improve the markets here. Um, Then you've got former pro athletes who are getting involved with SPACs and Billy Bean, who was the manager, general manager of um, the Oakland A's baseball team. I mean, that. In, it, just like that old saying, or maybe the saying only dates from the, um, you know, around 2000, the internet bubble. But, you know, it's, I remember people saying something like, well, when your taxi driver starts talking about stocks, you know, you're near the top. And as I read about these people who are complete tourists in finance getting involved in SPACs, I'm like thinking, of, you know, when is the taxi driver going to raise a SPAC? I mean, that's got to be right, or I guess today's version would be the Uber driver. So, um, yeah, I, it, to me, it's it's become somewhat laughable. But essentially, it's you think there's an incentive problem, right, with, with the idea that someone's raising money just to spend it on anything. Well, and, and they get paid significantly for spending it, They and they don't get paid if they don't spend it. Um, And the other thing is they generally have just a two-year window in which to spend it. So it's, you know, we, it's, it's really funny because coming out of the financial crisis, there was this recognition that, hey, if you give, you have these banks that have really cheap access to capital and, you know, they have all these prop traders. And when you have an incentive system that, goes heads I win, tails I don't lose, that leads to bad outcomes. Well, I mean, here you go with SPACs. Now, fortunately, they're not going to take down any bank, but um, yeah, they're just, I 
like I, I SPACs apparently SPACs had been growing for several years. I was totally unaware of them because my memory of SPACs is that they were just these really dodgy, laughed at ways of bringing companies public. Some of the real China turds from the you know 2010 to 2012 time period went public by via SPAC. So when <laughs> when I saw that they're mainstream and and these things are just raising routinely nine figures, ten figures. USD, I was stunned, but it didn't take me that long to get over that and actually start looking at one. There, there's one there's one important point to make here, which um, I don't think I've said this publicly. We were actually looking at that company Multiplan before it was announced that there was a SPAC to take it public. So we were looking just at shorting the debt. We felt that this company had a significant enough problem that we that we should short the debt. So while we were wrapping up our research there and you know and had developed conviction in the thesis, that is when it was announced that Multiplan was going public by SPAC. So it was, I guess when I look back on it, you know, I I've really hated this year in many ways. I mean, just on a personal level, business level, but there there were a couple of gifts business flies that just fell from the sky and multi-plan being acquired by Churchill Capital's SPAC is one of them. What I thought was interesting about the incentive issue and whether there's like a structural question there and problem with the model is that that's sort of a charge that can be leveled against you that that you know incentive wise short sellers are only incentivized to bring the stock down momentarily um, so to freak out the market, and then that's where you make the money. Um, well, you know, what do you, what do you say to that accusation? That's kind of well. I mean, look, number one, nobody is working. Nobody's showing up at their job for free. Okay, like you know, we, you know, I and I've thought a lot about this because you know I I do talk to a lot of journalists, and I feel that there's. Um, especially with the investigative journalists, I do feel like there's a lot of overlap, if not to some extent a kinship. But uh, this strange analogy popped into my head the other day because I'm not really a fan of the movie uh, movie series, but I do think it's apt and to understand what it is that we as activist short sellers do and why we do it. And that is the movie Blade. So that was uh, Wesley Snipes, right? So he's He's this half vampire character who hunts vampires and nobody is as effective at hunting vampires as he because he's half vampire. When you look at activist short sellers, we hunt we hunt bad capitalists, but we are half capitalists. I think at least for myself, maybe I shouldn't speak for others um, because there are definitely some for whom I will not vouch in this space. but. For myself, I think you have to understand I'm half crusader, I'm half capitalist. Um, I'm not capitalist enough that I've cashed in on brand and said, you know, hey, I'm going long and I'm going to be pushing, you know, stocks long and I can raise a lot more money this way and, you know, get paid insane amounts and management fees because we have such a large AUM base. I mean, I look, I legitimately think that that has been an option for me for years. Um, maybe I'm overestimating my value, but I think had I wanted to go that route, I could have done it a long time ago. 
And I've thought many times about retirement in the past. I mean, I came very close in 2017 to just saying, you know, like I'm out of this. And at that point, I moved from my family from San Francisco to Sonoma County because I just had to, you know, just chill. And and I reflected and I went through this whole like, you know, this this whole exercise of what would I be doing? Should I would I teach high school? And, you know, for a while, I kind of, you know, thought about like what it would be like to be a high school teacher. And then why did you want to quit? I mean, the the stress. Um, I mean, at that point in time, what had happened was, you know, we had um, we had, so we had shorted um, a French company in 15 Casino Guichard. We learned um, that it was in December of 15. So we learned in June of 16 that the AMF was investigating us and it was clear that it was very political and they had their knives out for us. And then in June of 2017, um, I just gotten back from a trip to Hong Kong where <laughs> I was featured on the front page of one of their papers as having crashed the Hong Kong stock market because I'd done a TV interview the day before the IRS in Hong Kong. And I was asked what I thought was the most innocuous question in the world, which is, or I gave the most innocuous answer to the most annoying question in the world, which was, the question what I was asked was, what are you going to reveal as your short tomorrow? I mean, journalists always apologize to me okay. afterwards for saying, you know, look, I had to ask that. But I am, I'm asked that question. And, you know, I just gotten off the plane from from San Francisco, like 15 hours to go to Hong Kong to do what? To drop a, you know, like a, you know, a European short? No, of course, a Hong Kong market short. So my answer was. Um, my answer was, well, I, I can't tell you, but it's something in Hong Kong. And with that, the Hong, the Hang Seng actually went down, um, I remember like maybe a couple of percent, about like 50 stocks just went, you know, into the toilet. <laughs> and the next day, like I'm on the front page of, I think it was the evening standard or maybe it was that day since it was the evening, you know, big picture of me, like, you know, like saying something like the guy who crashed the Hong Kong stock market. So that's like stressful, right? I mean, it, it's funny in a way, but in other ways, it's like, ah, you know, like I, I don't, I, mean, like, power, I don't want that. So. It's a lot of power, but, you know, I, but I really, and I, and I took some arrows for that. You know, people are like, oh, how, you know, that was irresponsible of you. And I'm like, how the F is that irresponsible? So, I had that. I come back to I, I come back to the U.S. and I'm back here a few days, and um, I hear that this German company that we had shorted the prior year um, called Stroer had just had its AGM, and the um, and on the management of the CEO of Stroer mentioned because they were asked about you know well what about Muddy Waters and he'd mentioned that um, Muddy Waters is under criminal investigation for this. So, you know, I'm like, all right, whatever, like, you know, probably the criminal authorities are just going through the motions, but I got, I retained criminal counsel and uh, in Germany and they contacted the prosecutor and I thought I was just going to hear back like, eh, you know, like it's no big deal. That was not what I heard back. I heard back that they are about to indict you. I said, what? Yes. I'm like what, you know, what the, what the F for? Um, insufficient um, disclosure of conflict of interest in your in your disclaimer. Like what? I mean, we had that we had that disclaimer reviewed and edited 
by excellent lawyers in Germany. I mean, the, the irony is I was really impressed by our German securities attorneys. I thought these guys were among the best attorneys I ever worked with. And keep in mind, I am a former attorney myself. And he said, yeah, um, you know, they're saying that you needed to include something in the disclaimer about having an intention to cover. But where's that in the law? And what are you talking about? Like, so, you know, now next thing I know, I'm on the phone with um, former, you know, with with an attorney who used to be a a U.S. attorney um, for the Eastern District of New York asking, you know, what are the odds that um, the DOJ or or the FBI is going to kick down my door at three in the morning, haul me out, put me in a cell and have and then extradite me to Germany to face criminal charges here. That, you know, and I didn't sign up for this. Like, I did not sign up for this. So there I was. And I mean, I was just thinking, you know, like, this is thankless. Like, I I made decent money, but A. I mean, thankless seems like a stretch. You might, you know, does it not relate to sort of the, the potential returns? Because the the you know when you when you start making when you start making money you you can understand like what amounts of money change your life okay I made life changing money back in 2011 my lifestyle has not been altered since um, I was I was basically broke when I started this business in 2010 I became a millionaire not major millionaire but um, in 2011. And I kind of grind it out, you know, since then. I mean, I pay roughly, been paying roughly 50% a year in taxes. Um, and I do okay, but like, I, you know, what I, you know, what I show up and do, like, does not change my life. And so if you say, well, you know, you can make an extra of like $4 million pre-tax this year or, you know, like $2 million after taxes, um, but you might get separated from your children for years um, and, you know, and sit in some cell in, in Germany. Um, yeah, man, like the, the trade-off just to me doesn't make sense. So it really, you know, it, it really, really messed with my head. And so I got to this point where I thought I was going to retire. And I have to say my team did that I'd built over the years and I've you know, most of them have been with me for a very long time. They did an excellent job of, you know, of keeping the business going while I was dealing with my shell shock. And the more I thought about it, you know, because at first I was thinking, well, what else would I do? And I found, you know, so I went through the exercise, like I said, that included college professor, high school teacher. The thing is, I went through, I went through this progression of, you know, what would I do here and telling myself, nah, you'd hate that. Um, or I shouldn't say hate it, but you know you wouldn't like it to really then stepping back and and looking at what I like about what I do. And I just i I made this bargain with myself um, that like understand that you know that I've chosen a way that something that's very stressful. I think it ha- I think it's meaningful because it is, you know, it is an attempt to hold, very wealthy and powerful people accountable for their abuses um, in the markets. And if, you know, look, if my if my skills, if my tools were in a different area of, you know, or in a different segment of society, I think I'd be probably doing something similar there. But um, 
I yeah, I came back to you know as much as I have days when I absolutely hate this. On the whole, I love it, and um, yeah, and so so here I am, and this is you know I, I have no plans. I, I recommitted myself to it. I have no plans to to walk away anytime soon. Although the one thing that has really been you know in my you know in my head um, since COVID broke out is just my absolute fury at how poorly we are governed and the complete morons and venal incompetence who are tasked with ordering society from a governmental perspective. And so like I was, I was driven into this business by rage. Okay. Um, You know, I, I recently launched something called zeros TV and I interviewed an investigative financial journalist, Roddy Boyd. And I think he said something like um, during the interview, like I walked the, I walked this, I think he said this, uh, this uh, veiled, well, I walk this planet in a low level rage and, and I'm with him on that. Like I, I felt like that really describes, describes me and why I do this and why I do enjoy um, taking down or knocking down, you know, people that I do. And, um, you know, I, I think that that low level rage could ultimately bring me into in a public service, but, um, you know, I, that's, that's a few years down the line. And right now living in Northern California, there's like hardly anybody would vote for me because I'm way too profane. And I say things that make people uncomfortable and are not woke and are not politically correct. So I would sort of need to choose my constituency. Yeah. I mean, it's great. It's great being an outsider, isn't it? And and the rebel and kind of attacking the, the establishment. Isn't there a, a problem with if if you go if one went into public service, then you're sort of becoming part of the system, and isn't that a lot trickier given your life position and rage? Well, well, it depends, right? I mean, I think you know if we if we look at things through a political filter, I think what you could you can equate what we do as activist short sellers. We are the populists of the market, but when we look at politics, populism didn't have to go into this. You can bleep this out if you're going to this batshit realm that it has gone into um, where, you know, populists just invent facts and make stuff up. And in thinking about that, I think the reason that populism has, at least in the United States, I, I can't really explain, you know, say France, but in the United States, the reason why I think populism is all about making making things up um, is because it's it sits inside an established political party. You know, you, I mean, they can't, they can't go and bash Democrats with truth because the real truths about their own conduct. And so I'm talking about Republicans um, are, are awful. I have no allegiance to either of these groups. And so I think it is just, uh, you know, just like it is with the markets, I can, I can drop the truth, the facts, and do it in a way with sharp elbows um, that, you know, that at least in the market succeeded in getting heard. I can, I think potentially I can do that in, in politics. I just, it's hard though, because I won't be sitting within a party because I loathe them both. I mean, although I loathe the Republican party far more. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that's, that's basically my, my template is this truth driven populism 
saying the things that are unpopular, or sorry, saying the things that really challenge those in power and and trying to hold them accountable. Um, you know, and look, we've had some success. Largely over the past 10 years, we're successful. I mean, the, the majority, I think the but substantial majority of things we've ever shorted over this period of time have gone down over time, even when the markets have, you know, ripped. Um, certain things have not. Um, I mean, you can't win them all, but but yeah, I, but I mean, you're looking at 2020, I mean, this is a harder environment in which to hold anybody accountable, um, you know, whether it's in the markets or in public life. Yeah, I mean, in terms of measuring your success, though, are you getting to a stage now where winning, you know, where sort of the stock's falling, is that really success? I mean, would you expect or would you want to have a sort of impact of an of actual reform and some of these institutions changing because you know essentially yeah. they're the problem right well you bring up a great question because i mean you know look i'm i'm j i was jaded to begin with and 10 years later i'm just i don't know i mean i'm jaded to the whatever power at this point um there are two things here one one thing i've long been fond of saying is I seldom leave the office in the evening thinking the world is a better place than I did when I got to the office that morning. That's one. But really, to, to I think the most the experience I've had that most directly addresses your point is U.S.-China listings. Um, I mean, we KO'd. We, you know, our research led to delistings. I think by 2012 of five of these things. Um, Four were in the U.S. and 2012. By the end of 2012, the you know you just the refrain you heard from U.S. investors and you and you know you heard them say publicly was China is uninvestable, and you know and with that I agree. I mean it's largely from a public equity perspective it is, but what happened? The Chinese government um, through their policy banks funded take privates of um, some high profile frauds. I mean, most of these were complete zeros. Some of them were the more real frauds, um, like Focus Media, which we had exposed in 2011. Post going private, they paid the SEC $56 million in a settlement um, based on our research. Still highly unfulfilling, but I thought something had changed. I felt you know, and I think other activist short sellers who were in the space felt the same way too. Like we were proud. I had lived in China when I started this business. I knew that as of 2010, the US, that Americans were thought of as gullible, stupid investors. And the people who were on the inside of this in China laughed. And by 2013, you know, they're getting quoted saying like, ah, oh, no more America. Like we hate the short sellers. But you know what? In 2014, Alibaba IPO'd. And it was massively oversubscribed. And this is a company that just three years later, Jack Ma had literally stolen Alipay, one of its subsidiaries, out from underneath the outside shareholders, SoftBank and Yahoo. They did not know for months that Jack Ma had transferred Alipay out of the Alibaba corporate structure to his own personal ownership. And when they finally found out, he blathered about like, oh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, under China's law, it's uh, illegal for uh, foreigners to have ownership here. Let me tell you what I'm going to pay you, you know, which 
Yeah. Let me tell you how that quote negotiation goes in China when somebody's already done what they're going to do and you have zero leverage. Like you get paid what they want to pay you. So people forgot about this. People forgot about all the China stuff. It's like, oh, Alibaba, man, China's growing so quickly. Yes, nobody believes the GDP growth numbers, but it's growing quickly. I don't know, man. And so then we get to like 2015 and 2016. And it's like we're looking around and the universe of U.S. listed of the U.S. markets is getting repopulated with these China frauds. They're just they tended to be more real than the previous generation. They were generally online, so they were a lot harder to, you know, to to detect um, or prove anyway. But, yeah, I mean, so so how do I feel in 2020? You know, I feel like we as a society are so greedy that we're incapable of learning these lessons or maybe we don't care i mean maybe we look at it and say hey china wants to guarantee one-way tickets on these things you know china stocks will only go up you know because they put short sellers in prison there and it's not just china right i mean you i I guess isn't what's going to happen now china's the only place with growth even if you sort of query the numbers and stuff. So if you're if you're searching for growth and with what's happening in the rest of the world, it's just this extra incentive to turn a blind eye, right? But that but that also ignores the realities on the ground, right? I mean, the China, the, the problem is so much of the economy is dominated by the state sector. So, you know, growth there to the extent that it's I mean, look, a lot of the growth is also just fueled by massive borrowings, um, whether they're in the public sector or private sector and, you know, in huge fiscal stimulus. Um, yeah, I guess we're guilty of the same thing, but, you know, nobody's saying talking about what a high growth economy the U.S. is. Um, but, you know, to the extent that there's growth there, the state sector eats eats the private sector's lunch. You say, ah, but what about TMT and Internet? Gee, the state sector, you know, doesn't get in, you know, doesn't get involved there. They, you know, state actors don't understand it. Yeah, but the numbers ain't real there either when you're talking about the private companies. So at the end of the day, you know, and by the way, there's a, the, the holding structure for these things that are listed in the U.S. You do not even own indirectly the the listed. You do not even own the operating business. You own an entity that has a series of contracts with the operating business. The operating business is still owned by the chairman and his buddies. And every single, this is called a VIE structure. And the VIE, ironically, the ability to consolidate these and show them as one company um, from an accounting perspective resulted from Enron because Enron was using these VIEs to keep debt off the balance sheet. So after Enron collapsed, the US accounting regulator promulgated new rules that required, that mandated consolidation of these. So all these Chinese companies have gone public by saying, oh, haha, we'll just consolidate this. But, you know, these businesses aren't really at risk because, you know, we're not the board's not going to be changed because shareholders can't do that. Um, And there's a series of contracts under which these operating companies are supposed to pay the subsidiaries of the list codes cash flows. But every single one of these we've looked at over the years has paid only de minimis cash flows or profits, whatever the formula is supposed to be, to the list co. So the bare minimum legal obligation that these things have had in order to, you know, from a like a real, you know, from a practical perspective to be real, 
we've never seen one that has met the bare minimum obligation, i.e. from day one of putting in place these VIE packages, everything we've looked at has been in material breach of its obligations from day one. And yet these trade for blah billion dollars each on in the U.S. exchanges and they're frauds. So, I, you know, we're living in this crazy world and I have no answers anymore. Uh, I mean, but it's I mean, that, that sort of sounds sounds terrifying. You sort of wonder, well, does everyone understand this and they're still in on it? You know, are you sort of this this person who's worked out these really complicated things that no one else can can understand without your help? Or do they see it and choose to turn a blind eye? Well, there's, you know, I think there are two categories here. Um, I call it three. Um, so there's the there are the Chinese people who are the smart money, who raise funds, and um, you know they're totally in on this. And I think when they, you know, the game for them is, I mean, I think these guys also just, you know, do so much insider trading because they've made friends with the the CEOs and CFOs of these companies. Um, I mean, can't prove it, but you know, it's one of those things where if you know the people and you know how this and really you're works, it's very general self- terms. So we're not sort of. I'm speaking. I mean, I have names in mind. I'm just not going to say them here, them. but but I have names in mind as I say this. Um, but you know, a lot of these guys sit in Hong Kong. Some of them sit in New York. But um, I, you know, I think so. They know what's going on. But you know, why do they do it? They're Chinese. Most of them came to America. They got degrees. They got MBAs in America. They started out their careers in America. But you know what? They can't talk baseball. They can't talk football. The reality of their job prospects in the U.S. is that they weren't going to get that far. You're not going to necessarily take this guy and say, hey, you know, you're the best analyst I've got to cover Amazon. So they have to do China. Like for them, it's, you know, it's, it's China or nothing. So it's basically ride or die. And so they so they go back to Asia and they set these firms up. Um, Then you've got on the U.S. side, you've got the quote, you know, smart money, U.S. investors. Um, And I remember back in uh, early, early 18, um, I had I was kind of speaking at a lunch table um, at an event. And one of these one of these guys was there and he's, he's a white guy. His firm is based in California. You know, he manages far more money than I'll ever, you know, get to manage in my life. And it just clocked in like 40, 45 percent net the year before. And I mean, most of it was in China TMT. And so, you know, I'm just sitting there at the lunch table kind of saying some of the same things that I've said here, you know, about the VIE structure. And he said, Carson, you know, I I got it. I got it. You know, I've got a bone to pick with you here. You know, that's there's never been, you know, one instance of VIE wrongdoing. And I was just like, bro, first of all, why don't we talk about the instances of where the operating companies were literally stolen? And I'm not even talking about Baba. Um, I'm talking about like Puda Coal, which people haven't heard of, but that was one of the early frauds. Let's talk about those for a minute. But then I brought up that whole point of these companies never make the required payments and that they are in material breach from day one. What was his reaction? He put his head back down and ate his salad. He doesn't care. You know, these these problems you're pointing out are quite structural. They're just kind of how things work, aren't they? It's not sort of a bad apple sort of situation. They're just, you know, systematically, that's just how it turns out. Can you, you know, as you're doing your work, can you a world, a capitalism in which 
there's no reason for muddy waters to exist anymore. But, you know, these I mean, things, I, these I can, I can, I can envisage that. I just don't know how we get there. You know, I thought um, as as markets were imploding um, in March, and you know, I, I think a lot of other um, skeptics and short sellers were feeling the same thing, which is we've been saying for years that financial engineering, you know, manipulating your financial statements, which is is very common and it's like the way of doing things. I'm not talking about fraud. I'm talking about within the accounting standards. You know, you violate the spirit of the law, but not the letter. Manipulating your financials and piling debt on top of that or or balancing debt, you know, on that foundation, it's going to create brittle balance sheets. It's going to create a brittle system. And here we are again, um, 12 years after the last time we, you know, we went through this. And so I thought, hey, these chickens have come home to roost. We're going, I mean, it's going to be really painful, but we're going to have clean slate for, for markets and market capitalism. But no, no, they managed to sweep all that under the rug. Just They just brought out a bigger broom and I guess got a bigger rug or whatever analogy you want to use. But we're just repeating this. I mean, it's like, a, you know, the other, I don't know, sometimes I'm good at thinking of one liners. And so, so I really should, you know, consider politics more strongly. But um, I just, I just thought, you know, but the problem with that is, so here's my thing with journalism, right? I can take a view, like investigative journalists will look at something, you know, they'll research it and they're like, I know it's a fraud or I know this is a lie. I can't use the word lie though. You know, I have to say potentially misleading and, you know, this, and it's like, I read this stuff and because I'm out there and I get sued once every two years and I don't lose those suits and I know, and you know, despite how skeptical courts are of short sellers, you know, I mean, if I were, you know, if I were Reuters, like they toss these suits, you know, I, I mean, like within five minutes, I'm just like, why do, you know, why can't you hit harder? Why can't you say what you mean? I mean, I get like, there are all these corporate structures around it, but that's my issue with journalism, uh, I guess is like, very few journalists out there. I mean, Roddy Boyd is one of the few because he's effectively self-employed who, you know, who can who can really say it, you know, because there aren't two sides to these stories all the time. Right. I mean, that's the whole problem in the Trump era with covering uh, with covering him. You know, he's I think he's probably, you know, according to somebody who counts this, I think he's told over 10,000 lies while in office, you know, tiny and, and large. And Still, it's so rare that anybody comes out and says, this is a lie. There's not another side. So, sorry, just I think to... It's changed. I, I think it's say, making a value judgment of this is a lie is not as powerful as showing that it's a lie. But I think, you know, obviously there's an economic reality to not, not getting sued if you're a journalism outlet. But I, but I guess, I look, just, and I know it probably beyond the scope of the, in, of the interview, but my... My comebacks. So, of course, you can't just say that's a lie and not provide support. But, um, you know, why why do we ask his press secretary to react? I mean, how many times, you know, you know, like, uh, you know, geez, Miss, whatever the late McEnemy or whatever her name is, um, you know, what, uh, you know, what do you have to say about this, you know, report about uh, bounties on, uh, you know, that uh, the president was aware that uh, Russian uh, that uh, Russian government had put bounties on U.S. troops in Syria. Well, I mean, like, 
at this point, why do we care? Like this person does not get an opportunity to re that person's response, which we know is a lie, should not be printed in the paper. So when when people criticize, including journalists, criticize how we do our work, you know, because we're not asking the company, we're not saying, hey, you know, we think you're lying about this. What do you have to say? Like we just say they lied about this. Like, I, I mean, at this and I think this is kind of this is this overindulgence of the of the venal personality type that I think has gotten us in part to where we are with as a society with our relationship to truth, whether it's in the markets or politics. Like we have to stop coddling these people, especially because when you do that, it just leads to more and more of it. So I don't apologize for going out there and saying this motherfucker is lying because somebody needs to. We don't have enough of that. And I do think that's part of how we got that got here. Sorry, but you know that's it's a it's an impassioned topic for me, or I'm impassioned on it. Carson Block, thank you very much for joining us, uh, and I'll, we'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Enjoyed it. That's our show for this week. I would like to thank my guest Carson Block and our producer Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to the Exchange podcast and our sister podcast, Views Room, on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Check us out every day on breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. <laughs>